Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. We're continuing in the series Early Christian Portraits of Jesus. We've dealt with Mark's portrait of Jesus, and now we move on to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel portrays Jesus as the new Moses and a new David. He draws on models, on types from the Hebrew Bible in order to cast Jesus in a particular way. So in this sense, Matthew's Gospel provides a very clear example of how stereotypes and typology works in ancient biography writing. Today we'll start by looking at the birth narrative in particular as a window into this portrayal of Jesus as a new Moses, and also the Sermon on the Mount, which is crucial. I argue that this portrayal of Jesus fits very well within the context of the Gospel of Matthew having been written by a Judean to other Judeans. And in the second episode that we move on to after this one, we will delve further into the whole question of what community was being addressed by the Gospel of Matthew and what sort of difficulties this Judean group of Jesus followers who believed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, what problems they were encountering in their relations with other contemporary Judean groups at the end of the first century, namely the rabbinic movement that I go into in some detail in the next episode. As usual, we begin, though, with introductory matters regarding the Gospel of Matthew generally. If you're interested in reading further on the portrayal of Jesus in Matthew, what I would recommend to you is Dale Allison's book, although it's a bit technical, it nonetheless is the best book that looks at this question of how does Matthew portray Jesus as the new Moses? And the book is appropriately titled just that, The New Moses. I hope you enjoy this podcast. And you can also consult my website if you'd like to read further on religions of the ancient Mediterranean at philipharland.com. Hope you come again. Let me talk about our main points. Something I mentioned when we were dealing with introducing ancient biographies and explaining that Gospels were ancient biographies was the stereotyping approach of authors in antiquity, certain typologies are in the minds of authors that affect the way the character has to be portrayed. Matthew's Gospel as an ancient biography illustrates very well this stereotyping technique that is at work in most ancient biographies. What I mean by this is Matthew's portrait of Jesus that we're going to be explaining today is primarily as David and Moses. Jesus is the new David, the new Moses in Matthew's Gospel the stories about figures from the past, Moses and David, come to shape the way in which Matthew tells his story of Jesus. And it illustrates well the sort of techniques that can take place, though obviously with a Greek and Roman ancient biography, in other words, with one, someone who's not a follower of Jesus, not a Judean, other types from the past would be influencing it. Along with this goes the very Judean character of Matthew's gospel. Although Matthew uses Mark as a source, uses a Gentile spin on Jesus as a source, Matthew's Gospel is the most Judean of all the Gospel portraits of Jesus. Most scholars, as we'll get into, suggest the author is a Judean, writing to Judean followers of Jesus as the Messiah primarily. That doesn't mean Gentiles aren't included in the way the author imagines the Gospel being used. Jesus is portrayed as a Torah-observant Judean, as a law-observant Judean in Matthew's Gospel. One final aspect of my main point today relates to that Judean context. Namely, the author is Judean, writing primarily to Judeans. 
However, this community we'll see towards the end of our discussion seems to be in tension with other contemporary Judean groups. It seems that it's primarily Judean groups associated with the emergence of rabbinic Judaism in the late first century. Chapter 23 is the place where Matthew has a collection of sayings that are attributed to Jesus. And they all are about the Pharisees as hypocrites. We need to make sense of that within the context of late first century developments, differing groups of Judeans with differing attitudes. In this group that we're looking at in Matthew believes Jesus is the Messiah. Other Judeans do not believe so. And there are some tensions going on between these groups, it seems. So we can sometimes move back, as we noticed with Mark, from looking at the Gospels as narratives, as stories, to the question of what does this story or narrative tell us about a community that's making use of this, about an author who creates it? What does it? How can we move back from that to the historical context of the author and the audience? Sometimes you can carefully do that. Let's get into uh, some introductory matters regarding Matthew's Gospel in terms of authorship, date, and issues like that. As with Mark's Gospel, there is also with Matthew's Gospel a tradition of authorship. And once again, the earliest attestation of this tradition is Papias, that guy from Asia Minor that we mentioned last week, who writes in the second century. And so Papias refers to Matthew the tax collector and claims that Matthew the tax collector collected together the teachings of Jesus in Hebrew. Now, the difficulty with that statement right off the bat is, Gospel of Matthew as we have it is in Greek, and all those who have spent quite considerable time trying to get at the question of whether or not there may have been an earlier Hebrew edition of it have had a difficulty doing so. Most studies that looked at this sort of question come to the conclusion that the Gospel of Matthew that we have was written in Greek originally. The authorship of this Gospel, therefore, is unknown, just like with the other Gospels. It's a later title given to it in the second century. Even though we don't know the name of the author, the author is definitely known, just as we found with Mark's Gospel, by analyzing the story, by looking at the details and what we find in Matthew's Gospel, we get an inkling as to who, in terms of identity, the author is. And what comes across very clearly throughout our discussion today is that the author is a Judean. A Judean who feels that to follow Jesus entails following Judean customs, including following the Jewish Torah to a T. There are a couple other little snippets in Matthew's Gospel that indicate something about the community behind this Gospel. One is that it might be an urban community. The reason that scholars suggest this is Matthew's redaction of materials he has. Remember, redaction is about editing and changing something that an author has. An author has sources, looks at the source, uses material from there, but redacts it, adds things to it, changes it, the wording, changes specific words. In this case, what I'm talking about is Matthew's favorite thing to do is to put a city where a village used to be. If Matthew comes across village in a source he's using, he changes it to polis, city. One suggestion that has been made is that the community he's writing to is an urban one. The earliest known citations of Matthew also indicate geographical possibilities of where this gospel was written and where it was first used. The first people to quote it are Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius is writing in about 110 CE. The other document that seems to quote it, and there are some debates about the details of this, 
is the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles that didn't end up in the New Testament. It dates in some of its layers, most likely to the late first century, and some of its layers to the early second century. Ignatius is from Antioch and was the leader of the church in Antioch. Didache is most likely from Syria. And this suggests the possibility that Matthew's gospel originates from somewhere in Syria, potentially Antioch. Most scholars date it between in, in the 80s and 90s CE. It dates after Mark, in our theory, and before the Didache and Ignatius use it. Matthew's sources you already know about. Mark is one of his sources in the theory we're working with. A saying source that, we, that scholars have labeled Q, based on crossover between Matthew and Luke, is another source that Matthew uses in our approach to it. But basically, Matthew uses Mark as his main framework for the story. We'll see when we come to Luke that Luke tends to favor Q in terms of structural issues, Matthew quite closely follows the order in which the story is told in Mark's gospel, and interspersed within that are additional materials that Matthew has. In fact, we'll soon see it's, there's five main chunks that get put in by Matthew at different points, but Matthew generally follows the overall flow of the narrative in Mark. Let me outline for you some of the distinctive characteristics of Matthew's gospel. There's distinctive Matthewan material that's in no other gospel. Five main discourses that Matthew has added to the structure of Mark. First of all, what is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. Discourse 2 is what is scholars call the Missionary Discourse, chapter 10. The Discourse 3 that's not in Mark that Matthew has are a series of parables of the kingdom in chapter 13. The fourth discourse is the community discourse, where Jesus is talking about the community of followers of Jesus. Finally, the eschatological discourse, which builds on chapter 13 of Mark, but has more material. There are also organizational and doubling motifs that Matthew seems to be fond of. He loves to have fulfillment of scripture, and we'll soon get into that in its Judean context. Twelve times in Matthew's gospel, where Matthew says, this was done to fulfill what is in the scriptures, and then it quotes a scripture. He also has a favorite doubling technique. He sometimes doubles stories, where Matthew will tell the same story twice. Matthew also likes to double the characters in some stories. So when he comes across one blind man being healed in Mark's gospel, it becomes two blind men being healed. Another one is the two demon-possessed men being healed in chapter 8 of Matthew. As to the doubling of actual stories, let me mention some. The divorce, Jesus' teaching about divorce is repeated twice. Jesus' teaching about this generation demanding a sign repeats twice. The accusation of Jesus being Beelzebul, being the head of the demons, and that's why he can cast out demons, repeated twice. This is the topper, episode that involves what was one blind man and Mark is now two blind men. On top of that, he doubles the two blind men story and has two times that he tells the story of two blind men being healed. A few more distinctive features to say. Peter is a favorite of Matthew. Matthew's gospel has a whole lot more stories about Peter than any of the other gospels have. We know as historians from other sources that Peter is a favorite on the Judean side of the early Jesus movement, don't we? And so this emphasis on Peter fits well with the Judean authorship and Judean audience, expected audience, of this particular gospel. Let's go over the central themes in the plot line of Matthew's Gospel, and then we'll work our way through it like we did with Mark, although we have to do it a bit quicker in the sense that this Gospel is about 10 chapters longer. 
So we'll see how we do on that. Key themes in the plot. First of all, the presence of God seems to be an important issue for Matthew's gospel and how Jesus is portrayed. Near the opening, the gospel talks about Jesus as God with us. And the gospel concludes with a statement of Jesus saying, I am with you always. So this idea of Jesus as God with us somehow, and we can't assume what that means, and we can't assume it's some Trinitarian doctrine from the 300s, can we? But nonetheless, there's some way in which this author thinks of Jesus as God with us. We have to figure it out. The identity of Jesus is once again the key theme of the whole gospel. All of the gospels are about who is Jesus. So identity is always central. The only question is, what is the identity and how do the different Gospels have a different identity? How do they portray Jesus differently? And that's what we're getting into. For Matthew, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan for the salvation of Israel. Jesus fulfills two types of the past. Jesus fulfills the type of Moses the prophet and Jesus fulfills the type of David the king. So Jesus is the new Moses and the new David. These two types are integral to Israelite and then Judean ways of thinking. They're the ideal types of the prophet and of the king. Well, if anyone can help Israel, it'll be a prophet like Moses, and it'll be a king like David. And that's how Matthew portrays Jesus. Now, on the issue of Jesus being the new Moses, let me refer to a passage in the Hebrew Bible that shows you that Matthew's not alone in terms of a Judean having these ideas of expecting a prophet like Moses. So if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and following. So here we are in the five books of Moses, as they're called. Moses is talking about the Levitical priesthood. He's talking about prophets. He's talking about kingship. And then in the context of talking about prophets, Moses is portrayed as saying this. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. This is what you requested of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, If I hear the voice of Yahweh my God any more or ever again, see this great fire, I will die. Then Yahweh replied to me, They are right in what they have said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything that I command. Anyone who does not heed the words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will hold accountable. This passage in Moses becomes a favorite thing of early Christians. We'll see that Luke's gospel seems to be familiar with this passage too and imagines that Jesus fulfills that as well. So a prophet like Moses, but also a Davidic king, is the portrayal of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Two very Judean, very Israelite and Judean concepts. In Matthew's gospel, like Mark's, conflict with authorities is still a dominant theme in the narrative. In fact, Matthew gets that from Mark, but he intensifies it. Matthew intensifies conflicts with authorities in a particular way that I've already mentioned. And that is, he emphasizes conflict with Pharisees. Just to give you a little bit of a flash forward to Luke, to see a difference, Luke has a whole lot of stories of Jesus hanging out with Pharisees and having meals with them. Matthew has a whole lot of Jesus' sayings condemning Pharisees. Who's right historically is another issue altogether. We're not after the historical Jesus right now, are we? We're after how these different early Christian authors are portraying Jesus. The whole idea of rejection by people, including authorities, 
is an organizational principle in Matthew when we get to a certain section that we're going to deal with, what you could call the repudiation section. The characters in Matthew's gospel are similar to the ones we came across in Mark. You'll have Jesus, you'll have Jewish authorities, you have the crowds, and you have the disciples. On top of that, you have a few additional characters beyond that. Let's work our way through this narrative now and see how this Judean author portrays Jesus. Some scholars have pointed out this threefold structure, and it's from Kingsbury I'm drawing this, where chapters 1 to 4 you could think of as the presentation of Jesus. Then the teaching and healing activity of Jesus occupies chapters 4 to 11. Then chapters 11 to 16 are about how people react to the activities of Jesus in healing and teaching the repudiation of Jesus from chapters 11 to 16, and finally 16 to 28, where things are now pointing forward to Jerusalem and ultimately to the execution. And things accelerate, as in Mark's gospel, things start to accelerate at that point, moving towards the dangers that Jesus faces. Now, the reason that Kingsbury and people like him have suggested this structure is in part some phrases that Matthew uses that we'll come to in a moment. So let's get into the first section, chapters 1 to 4, where right off the bat, we have the portrayal of Jesus' forefront. In fact, Matthew's gospel opens with a genealogy. Who does Jesus descend from? An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one, Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the very first sentence tells you that this author thinks of Jesus as the son of Abraham, father of all Judaism, and the son of David. Not only that, but something that you may not notice is if you look at the way in which the genealogy is structured, Matthew's focused on 14, isn't he? He wants 14 generations, regardless of whether or not this is accurate, so that there's 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 generations between David and Josiah, 14 generations between Josiah and the Messiah, Jesus. 14 in Hebrew spells David. In Hebrew and Greek, most ancient languages, you use letters to do numbers. Already in this first section, you also have that quote that I mentioned that is significant, that is the first of numerous fulfillment citations. So that a Judean aspect of Matthew's gospel is that he loves to go to the Hebrew Bible and relate how the Hebrew Bible is fulfilled in what Jesus does or that he goes to the Hebrew Bible and uses a quote from the Hebrew Bible to tell the story of Jesus. And that's the first one you come across, these fulfillment ones, is in chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. He's telling the birth narrative of Jesus. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So in the first case of a fulfillment citation, he's also portraying Jesus. Jesus, as in the story of the infancy here, is already portrayed by Matthew as God with us. So he's David, and he's God with us somehow. Again, don't assume the Trinitarian doctrine of the 4th century. These fulfillment citations, as I said, there's 12 of them. Now, the technique that Matthew uses in Jewish interpretation of the Hebrew Bible is the same sort of loose approach, at least from a modern perspective, loose approach, that we learned when we looked at Paul's letters. And we learned that Paul illustrated Judean techniques of using scripture. It's used sometimes on wordplay, 
that there's simply a word that the author likes about a passage and brings in that passage and sees it as a fulfillment somehow in Jesus. It can refer to all kinds of things and be used in a different way by the Judean author in the first century. They're not interested in what we as moderns call literal interpretation. And they're not interested in what we would call as accurate interpretation, like historical interpretation. We're still in the first two chapters of Matthew, and already we have Jesus as the David, we have him as God with us, and we have him as the new Moses. The birth narrative in Matthew's gospel itself is a midrash on the story of Moses. It's a reinterpretation of the story of Moses with Jesus fulfilling the role of Moses. Now, let me give you a little bit of background before I explain that. As you know, the story of Moses is told in Exodus of the Hebrew Bible, including his childhood, including the fact that in the Hebrew Bible, it's told that the Israelites are slaves in Egypt at that point in the narrative. And Pharaoh is trying to keep the Israelites down and make sure they can't revolt and sort of get away. And so he makes things harder and harder for them in terms of not giving them uh, the hay in order to mix with their, the bricks they're making and all that. And he's trying to make it hard for them. On top of that, he's worried about too many men being among the Israelites. And he decides, I'm going to kill all male children. Remember that? In the story of uh, Moses' birth. And then Moses gets saved from that potential killing and put in a basket and you know, goes down the river. And then one of the royal figures, women, finds it and then raises him. And then ultimately he ends up becoming the savior of Israel. And so that story's in Exodus. However, that story is very a favorite within subsequent Israelite history and within Judean culture in the first century and in the centuries just before that. And it gets told and retold in different ways. So that if you look at Josephus, a first century Judean, who rewrites part of the Bible and tells the story of Moses, he has a whole lot more additional information, Josephus does, in the story of Moses. And one of the key ones that you need to know before you understand how Matthew's portraying Jesus as the new Moses is this. One of the key ones that was added in was the story that Pharaoh not only wanted to keep the Israelites down and was keeping the male population down, but also he heard rumors of an expected savior to be born among the Israelites who would lead them to freedom. And so in the legends that develop later around the story of Moses, that gets added in. And that's a key one for you understanding how Matthew is doing a midrash on the story of Moses in the way that he tells Jesus' story. Let's look at this story then in Matthew's gospel. There's confirmation that they're descendants of David in the story of when, when the angel, the messenger from God, comes to jo Joseph, he says, son of David, and calls it's underlining the fact that these are descendants of David in the birth narrative, and then Jesus is born, uh, and he's named God with us in the way this gospel portrays it. And then we have the story that happens later on, right? In the time of King Herod, so King Herod the Great is who we're talking about here, not Herod the Tetrarch, who you learn about in connection with John the Baptist. Astrologers from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? Matthew's having the astrologers acknowledge Jesus as a king. For we have observed his star at, his, at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So he's worried about the birth of this kingly Messiah. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet. And then you have another one of these quotes that Matthew likes to have. 
Then Herod secretly called for the astrologers and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you find him, it's going to go on to say, come back to me and tell me. He's worried about an anointed one, a Messiah. He's worried about a rival that might overthrow his kingdom and that he wants to get this figure and make sure that the, the, the figure is put out of business. Then you have the, the astrologers reaching Jesus and an angel comes and warns them not to go back to Herod. Herod is paralleling Pharaoh, Jesus paralleling Moses in this story. Not only is the overall story a midrash on Moses, but the choice of words, if you look at the Greek, and if you were familiar with the details of the story of Moses, you start to see the deliberate choices of words from the story of Moses in the Hebrew Bible, in the process of telling the story of Jesus here. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, I'm in verse 13, and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. We know that there's loose ways of using scripture. That quotation refers to Moses, not as a child, but later on when Moses is in Egypt. So there's subtle ways in which Matthew is continually saying, Jesus is the new Moses, Jesus is the new Moses. And it's not just going to be the birth narrative. You'll soon have the, uh, some confirmation of this through other parts of the narrative. Herod then kills all the children in and around Bethlehem in the narrative of Moses. That's exactly what Pharaoh does. He does kill all the male children, with the exception of Moses, who get, escapes and becomes the savior of his people. In chapter 4, you have an expansion of the temptation of Jesus. In Mark, you had just a momentary mention that Jesus went out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. In Matthew and in Luke, you have extended versions of that story. Then you have Jesus beginning his ministry here. In chapter 4, verse 17, you have, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. From that time is a favorite way of Matthew saying he's switching gears here. And he's going to another part of his story. From chapters 4 to 11, we're getting the activity of Jesus, his teaching about the kingdom of heaven, and his healing. Let's look at the first extended public speaking of Jesus. Because this underlines the fact that it wasn't an accident that Jesus appeared to be like a new Moses in the birth narrative. It confirms to us that the author of the Gospel of Matthew is portraying Jesus as the new Moses. The first public speaking, extended public speaking of Jesus is also the first discourse that Matthew has that is not in Mark. The inaugural sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, where Matthew collects together a whole lot of teachings of Jesus and presents them to us as Jesus speaking on the mountain. The mountain imagery is associated with the giving of the law in the Hebrew Bible. Mount Sinai, the giving of the law to Moses, very closely associated in the minds of people in the first century, Judeans in the first century. And so Matthew is telling us what's important about what he thinks about Jesus' teaching, about what aspects of Jesus' teaching are most important. Take a look at one of the first things that is stated. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. 
which underlines to you the Judean identity of the author and his expectation that his audience are following the Judean way of life, including following the Torah. Chapter 5, verse 17 and following. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T is a way of putting it, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Here is the presentation of a Judean Jesus who says you need to follow the Torah to the T. Not only that, there's a little bit of irony here in the examples that are drawn at the end there. Because Jesus' saying is presented to us as you need to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. We're getting more into how Jesus is portrayed as Moses here. He's on a mountain. He's just made a strong statement of the importance of law given by God on a mountain. This next section, traditionally and wrongly called the antitheses. In other words, they were wrongly presented as Jesus referring to something and then saying the opposite. That is the wrong way to understand this material. Let me give you a new way to understand it. Let's look at it. This is immediately after that section about Jesus saying, you need to follow the Torah. He's, on his, he's up on the mountain teaching that you need to follow God's law. And he says this, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. What's that quoting from? Quoting from the Torah. It's quoting from, in the way that this author would understand it, quoting from Moses. And where did Moses get it? Moses got it from God as God's prophet. So this is a quotation, you shall not murder, from the Ten Commandments, actually part of the actual tablets that were brought down from the mountain by Moses. And Jesus is giving his interpretation of those laws. But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to Gehenna of fire. You'll be put in a big garbage dump and burn forever. These are not antitheses, but rather interpretations of the law that actually radicalize and go back to the heart of the law. Jesus is presented here by Matthew as doing an interpretation of the law to get back to what it really means. Not to counter these laws, but to show why the laws were given. This is your interpretive key for all of these five supposed antitheses. They get to the intention of why God gave the law. Let's work our way through it. So in this case, the law was, you shall not murder. Jesus is presented as saying, what is the intention of the law? It's to prevent murder. What causes murder? Anger. God meant for us not to be angry. Not only that, but he moves back from anger. What might lead to anger? Feeling negative about people and calling them names? You're not allowed to call names. It's going to the heart of that law, interpreting its intention, and then stating what God's intention was in that law. Let's move on to the next one so that you understand how this works. Verse 27 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, from the five books of Moses. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The, the key we're using for interpreting this is this. The law of not committing adultery was given by God for a reason. The reason was to limit, to limit bad sexual activity. Jesus claims to be able to go back to that intention of limiting, that God gave that law to limit, and goes back to the tension, well then, why don't we eliminate the thought of improper sexual activity? So once again, this is the way that helps us to understand this. Let's move to the next one. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Again, quoting from the five books of Moses. And presented in Mo the five books of Moses as though it was something God gave to Moses to give to the people. Here, Jesus giving to the people an interpretation. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. Again, the key. What was the intention of the law? The intention of the law was to limit divorce. God intended to limit divorce. What's the ultimate limitation of divorce? Not to have it at all. You cannot divorce, Jesus' teaching. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is on the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And then it's the let your yes be yes and your no be no. So the idea here is the intention of the law of not swearing falsely was to avoid untruths, to eliminate falsehood. If that's the intention of the law, we'll do that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Never lie. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give him your cloak as well, etc. So in the Hebrew Bible, the law is the, also known as the law of retaliation, but better put in the way that Jesus is interpreting it here, as presented by Matthew, a restriction on retaliation. In other words, you only take an eye for an eye. If someone plucks your eye out, you don't go and cut their head off, limiting retaliation. Jesus then says, the point of this law is to limit retaliation. What better way to limit retaliation? To not retaliate at all, and even if you're being hit, to not respond. So there we have, in this first main discourse in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 to 7, the first inaugural teaching of Jesus, a very strong portrait of Jesus as a Judean who follows the Judean Torah to the T, and as the new Moses who is able to give the law again in terms of getting to the intention that God had in giving the law in the first place in the way that Matthew understands it. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this second series in the podcast is my own remix of portions of What You Are from the album Without Zero by Joie. This is copyright 2007 Real World Records and it's used with permission under a Creative Commons type license.